The Christian life is one long journey in learning to trust what God says over what you see. That's discipleship. Learning over and over and over again to trust what God says in His Word over what you see with your eyes. And that's what the original audience of 1 Kings needed to be reminded of. Recall that they were in exile and living as slaves in Babylon because they abandoned the Lord and began worshiping other gods. But they had a promise from God, from the prophet Jeremiah, that he would bring them back home after 70 years. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So as they lived their lives in exile, away from home, and going through sorrow and pain and suffering and hardship and raising their kids and living check to check, they had to learn to trust what God says over what they could see. They had to trust His word, trust His promise. And it's a lesson that we have to relearn over and over and over again. We never grow out of this as God's children. We are always being put in situations where we have to trust God. Always. We are always being put in situations where we have to trust God and what He says in His Word over what we see. In fact, that's the whole Bible, right? The Bible is full of story After story, after story of God's people having to trust Him over and over and over again. Do we think it's going to be any different for us? Do we think that somehow we get a pass? I hate to burst your bubble so early in the sermon, but I'm sorry. We don't get a pass, do we? We don't get a pass on this at all. And it wasn't any different for Elijah. He's a prophet, but he doesn't get a pass. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 19 today. So turn there in your Bibles. Elijah, the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of the Lord, after a crazy, out-of-this-world victory over the false god Baal on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah, he too will have to learn again that he has to trust what God says over what he sees. And so you might as well get comfortable with this. This is how your life is going to be for the rest of your life, Christian. Time and time and time again, over and over and over again, as you raise kids, as you live check to check, as you suffer hardship and sickness, you will be called to and you will have to relearn to trust what God says over what you see. And so in order to help us learn this truth so that we can face all of life with joy and expectancy, and we're going to come back to that idea of expectancy. You're thinking, Pastor, you just told me I'm going to have to learn to trust Jesus over and over again. I can do that with joy and expectancy? Yes. In order to help us 
learn this truth so that we can face all of life with joy and expectancy. In order to help us relearn this truth, we're going to watch Jesus make pancakes for Elijah. I mean, isn't that great? Jesus made pancakes for Elijah. Awesome. And you thought Jesus was boring. You thought Jesus was boring. No, what does he do? He makes pancakes for Elijah. There's a fuzz flying in the air. He makes pancakes for Elijah to encourage him that he has to learn to trust God over what he sees and to encourage him that God is with him. And then that story gets written in Scripture so that the original audience of 1 Kings who are sitting as slaves in exile in Babylon so that they could be reminded that they've got to trust God's word over what they see and that God is with them. And now it's written in God's word for us today at Grace Baptist Church, Santa Maria in 2019 so that we could be reminded again. Jesus makes pancakes for Elijah, so that you, whatever it is you are going through in your life, so that you will be reminded that you have to trust God's word over what you see, and so that you can be reminded that Jesus is with you. Jesus makes pancakes for Elijah to strengthen him. And to encourage him. And as we read this account in God's word today, we too can leave here today strengthened and encouraged on our journey because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Now, I know, I know, it's not pancakes at this table. It's just some crackers and juice. But just like Elijah's pancakes, what we eat here today will give us strength for our journey ahead as we raise kids, as we live check to check, and as we suffer hardship and sickness. So turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So let's go back in time. We saw last week that Elijah ran ahead of King Ahab's chariot 17 miles all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. And that was a picture of the Lord saying to King Ahab, are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow my word? And that's where we pick up the story today. So picture Elijah. He's huffing and puffing now. From this 17-mile spirit-of-the-Lord-empowered sprint where he outran the chariot of King Ahab. And he gets to the entrance of the city, and then Ahab goes whizzing by in his chariot to where? He goes home to his wife, Jezebel. But understand that Jezebel is not a Susie homemaker type. She's no June Cleaver. Jezebel wears the pants in this family. And so King Ahab tells Jezebel all that happened on Mount Carmel. How the God that they worshipped, Baal, never showed up. And how Yahweh, the true God, brought fire to these water-soaked sacrifices. And then how the 850 prophets of Baal in Ashtoreth were slaughtered by the prophet Elijah at the brook Kishon. Now, Now think about this. Think about how Jezebel is hearing this. This is a big deal to Jezebel. 
She had grown up in a Baal home. Like we say someone grows up in a Christian home. Jezebel grew up in a Baal home, a Canaanite home. And these were her prophets. It would be like finding out that the speakers at a pastor's conference, like R.C. Sproul, Alistair Begg, John Piper, Ray Ortland, they were all slaughtered. So Queen Jezebel responds to this. She texts Elijah these words, Tomorrow you're dead. Actually, she probably just sent a few emojis to Elijah. Jezebel tells Elijah that if he isn't dead by this time tomorrow, then may the gods slaughter her. So she's serious. She takes an oath in blood that if she doesn't kill Elijah, then what happened to those 850 false prophets at the brook Kishon should happen to her. And so what does Elijah do once he sees Jezebel's text message? Verse 3 says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. So Elijah gets scared and starts running. Or does he? Elijah gets scared and takes off running. Or does he? Is he scared? That's what many commentators and preachers say. They say that Elijah, the powerful prayers prophet, Mr. Mount Carmel champion, filayer of false prophets, is now running for his life out of fear of Queen Jezebel. And they go on and on and on in their sermons about how Elijah could stand up to 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, but he was too chicken to face a woman, Mrs. Jezebel. If I had a penny for every time I heard a pastor preach like that, I'd be rich. So they go on and on and on about how Queen Jezebel's text message scared the living daylights out of Elijah. But is Elijah scared? Is he really scared of Jezebel? Is he a chicken on the run like so many preachers say in their sermons? Well, let's slow our roll a minute and not jump to any conclusions. Let's examine what is meant by Elijah's running. In the original Hebrew language, the words fear and see are very similar looking in the imperfect form which is used here. They look the same, actually. They are identical in the original consonantal text. Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language is just consonants in the Old Testament. You, don't, you fast forward to about the 6th century AD and a group of Hebrew scribes called the Masoretes, they went in and started putting in vowels so that they could preserve the oral pronunci pronunciation of these Hebrew words. So up until then, it looks the same. It's just all consonants. We don't get vowels in the Hebrew language until the 6th century AD. So these words are identical in the original consonantal text. So it would be kind of like in English uh, with the word uh, desert or desert. You desert someone or you're in a hot desert. How do you tell the difference? Context helps. So unfortunately, the ESV translation adopts the word fear here. But there are other translations that read, then Elijah saw. So I think it should be translated as Elijah saw. I think it should read, then he saw and arose. So the best and oldest Hebrew manuscripts have the word saw here. 
Elijah saw. And when you're dealing with textual criticism and you're trying to understand what the original Hebrew reading is, the going theory is this. The more difficult reading is probably the original. In other words, when scribes were copying this text from from one piece of paper, if you will, to another, they most likely saw the word saw and they thought, well, this seems out of place because he takes off running. So they inserted the easier reading, the Hebrew word for fear. And that's probably how we got fear instead of saw. In your English Bibles, you can look. You probably have a footnote at the bottom that says, or Elijah saw. So the earliest and best manuscripts, the Masoretic text, definitely has the word saw here. So if we adopt the translation, Elijah saw, which I think is the correct and I think it's the original wording, what did Elijah see that would make him take off running? If Elijah is not running because he's afraid of Jezebel, and if he's now running because he saw something, then what in the world did he see that would make him take off running? And here's the answer. I think Elijah saw that Ahab and Jezebel were unmoved by Yahweh's victory at Mount Carmel. Elijah realized that although it was a momentous victory over Baal, Jezebel and King Ahab were untouched and unfazed by what transpired there. They weren't interested in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of Baal. Elijah realized that even though Baal was defeated on top of Mount Carmel, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were not going to repent. Therefore, Elijah ran away. Not because he feared Jezebel. He saw that Jezebel wanted to kill him, and he took off running, not out of fear, but out of the realization that things were not going to change spiritually in Israel. He saw that the Mount Carmel episode did nothing to Jezebel and Ahab, and so he ran. So look at verse 3. Then he saw and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So let's answer a few important questions that will help us understand the text and keep us from jumping to conclusions. Why would Elijah run from Jezebel if he's not afraid? Why does he take off running if he's not afraid of her? And if he wants to die, why not just stay put in Jezreel because Jezebel would have gladly obliged his death wish? I think one of my Old Testament professors from seminary, Dr. Ron Allen, explains it well. He says this, Elijah wanted to die, for he was broken. He did not wish to die at Jezebel's hand, for that would be judged her victory, hence his flight. But south of the proverbial southernmost city of the southern kingdom, in the wilderness of Judah, where none would give Jezebel credit for his death, there he begged Yahweh to take his life. Elijah was not afraid of Jezebel. Rather, he saw that the spiritual climate in Israel would remain unchanged. Elijah saw that all that happened on Mount Carmel with the defeat of Baal didn't phase Ahab and Jezebel. Therefore, he ran away to die far away from everyone else. 
he ran away because if he stayed put in Jezreel, then Jezebel would have killed him and people would have seen that as a victory for Baal. Remember, if he just wanted to die, all he had to do is just stay put in Jezreel and Jezebel would have gladly accommodated him. So Elijah is running here precisely because he doesn't want to die at the hands of a pagan queen. He's running because if Jezebel kills him, then the morning papers would read, Victory for Baal, Elijah dead. And so Elijah runs down to Beersheba, which was 100 miles south of Jezreel. And then he goes another day's journey into the wilderness. He didn't have to run or go this far out of the way if he's simply running from Jezebel. Elijah is running from Jezebel because he doesn't want her to kill him and then have Baal get the victory. And so Elijah's on the run. He's broken. He's depressed. He's down and out. But why is he down? Why does he have a case of the blues? Elijah is down because it appears that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and the nation of Israel have not turned back in repentance to Yahweh. It's as if what happened on top of Mount Carmel didn't happen at all. And so Elijah thinks that he's the only person in Israel who hasn't bowed a knee to Baal. He saw that nothing changed. And so he thought to himself, I'm the only one left. Elijah thinks he's the only person left who loves the Lord. And he'll actually confess that to the Lord in verse 14, which we'll look at either next week or the week after. But here's where Elijah goes wrong. He's looking at what he sees. He's going by his perception of events. He's going by by his perception and his understanding of what he sees in his life. He's actually doing the reverse of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. He is not trusting in the Lord with all his heart. He's leaning on his own understanding, and he's not acknowledging the Lord. Elijah needed someone to text him these words. Hey, E, trust what God says over what you see. And this is what we're called to every day. Which is why we have to be in the Word of God. Which is why we need to be reading the Bible, hearing it preached. It's why Elijah took off running faster than King Ahab's chariot for 17 miles. Because God was saying, Yahweh was saying to King Ahab, Are you going to follow my word now? You saw what I did on Mount Carmel. Are you going to follow my word? Because Elijah is my prophet. He's a mouthpiece for me. He speaks my word. You're following him to Jezreel. Are you going to follow me now? In order to trust what God says over what we see, we have to be in the Bible. It's what we're called to do every day as individual children of God and then collectively as a church family. And so the Bible records all of these stories of people learning to trust the Lord over and over and over again because you know what? We are so slow to learn, aren't we? Newsflash, what? Really? Yeah, because we naturally get cozy and comfortable in life when things are going well, don't we? And we need to be awakened again to see just how weak and desperate we really are. Speaking of being awakened, did you see what our our pray for awakening prayer and verse is for this week? Look in your bulletin and grab the prayer list. We started back in January following the Ligonier Ministries Pray for Awakening Guide. And this is what was scheduled for this week. 
Pray for awakening. Pray for yourself and your family. Pray that you and your family would trust in the Lord and not in your understanding so that you will walk the straight path of faithful discipleship. And then there's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. You can't make this stuff up. I didn't plan this. We have a word for this kind of stuff. Like when all the songs go together with the sermons, Chet and I don't get together and talk about that. We like to sit back and say, oh, God did that. We have a word for this. You know what it is? Providence. Sovereignty. Say, God is speaking to us today. God is speaking to you today with whatever's happening in your life and whatever's weighing your heart down. God's trying to get our attention. He knew that our big idea would be about trusting Him. And He knew that the first week of November, the Ligonier Ministries Pray for Awakening God would be focused on trusting the Lord and walking the path of discipleship. Providence. So the Holy Spirit is trying to get our attention, y'all. He's reminding us that we can trust Him. He's reminding you today, you can trust Him. He's reminding us as a church that we can trust Him no matter what we are facing now or what we'll ever face in the future. This is just His kindness to us, Grace. He is gently whispering to us that everything is going to be all right and that He's got it all under control. Of course, that doesn't mean it's easy, right? I mean, trusting Jesus is hard because we're sinners. He's trustworthy. The problem is not with Him. The problem is with us and our hearts. Because we're still sinners. We still live in a fallen world. Even though the Bible calls us to a life of faith and trust, the Bible does not shy away from the fact that trusting Jesus is hard. This story with Elijah serves to remind us that we are a people of faith. It serves to remind us that we walk by faith and not by what? We walk by faith and not by sight. Disciples are called to trust what Jesus says over what we see. A Christian life is one where we always have to be reminded to trust what God says over what we see. A few years ago, I had Heather recite Romans 8.28 to me that all things work together for good. And I just needed to hear it from someone else. And so she did. And then I said, do it again. And she did, and then I said, again, I need to hear it again. Now, why would I do that? Because trusting Jesus is hard. Because disciples are called to trust what Jesus says over what we see. Following Jesus means that we're called to believe his word over and over and over again, time after time after time, and not be moved by what we see or by what we feel. And so understand this, Grace. God is unpredictable. You should probably get, be comfortable with that. God is unpredictable. You see that here with Elijah. I mean, there's ultimate victory over Baal on top of Mount Carmel, and yet Ahab and Jezebel are unmoved. What? That God is unpredictable. Elijah goes from Mount Carmel to running faster than a chariot for 17 miles to having a bounty put out on his head. Elijah is learning Christianity is like a roller coaster ride. Up, down, over, under, zigzag, joy, sorrow. 
or as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This is the nature of life and ministry. You never know what God is going to do next or what He is going to ask you to do next. And you have to learn anew to trust Him. So our text today is telling us that we can pour our hearts out to God and tell Him what's going on. The text is telling us what Psalm 62.8 says, which was our scripture reading before the sermon. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Elijah poured his heart out to God in verse 4. He said, I'm done. Stick a fork in me, Lord. I want to die. I'm better off dead. Elijah poured his heart out to God, and he didn't hold anything back. And that's what we're called to do, to pour our hearts out to Jesus and to leave it all with him, to tell him what we lack, and then to leave that with him and slowly walk away. Jesus, here's everything that's going on in my life. Here's what I need, what I'm stressed about, what I'm tossing and turning in my bed. Here it is, Jesus. I just give it all to you, and I'm going to leave it with you, and I'm going to walk away because I trust you. And then you may have to come back an hour later and be like, here I am again. Here's that stuff. Took it with me. Here you go, Jesus. And you walk away and you leave it. You may have to come back 10 minutes later. Here it is, Jesus. But you know what? Jesus knew whatever it is that you're going through right now. He knew that 10,000 years ago. Who are you going to trust in this situation? You just found out last week. He knew for 10,000 years. And so you just take that situation to him and you say, I'm going to leave it with you because I trust you. Because you can do something with this far better than I ever could. I'll mess it up, Lord. I'll leave it with you because I trust you. That's what we're called to do. Pour our hearts out to Jesus, leave it all with him, and trust him that he's got it all under control. Christian life is all about having to learn anew to trust Jesus. It's about coming back. Over and over and over again, time after time after time again, and to simply trust Jesus. And that's what Elijah will have to learn again as he's napping under a tree. An angelic alarm clock will go off and remind him that God is with him. Look at verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So once again, in 1 Kings, Elijah is the recipient of food. First... It was ravens, if you remember, who fed him barbecue sandwiches back in chapter 17. And then it was the widow in Zarephath who fed him with this never-ending supply of flour and oil. And now it's angels that feed him pancakes. I mean, this guy has it made. I don't know why he's depressed and wants to die. People keep bringing him food. 
He's got ravens, widows, and angels as his butlers. Isn't God amazing? Isn't he wild and crazy? This is vintage Yahweh right here. Him coming and sending the angel of the Lord to make Elijah pancakes. This is vintage Yahweh. Because you have a depressed, self-focused, self-absorbed, mopey prophet who's taking a nap. And God says, send the angel of the Lord to make him some pancakes. Wow. Such kindness. And these pancakes will give him strength, the text says, for a 40-day journey. Doesn't this text make you want to shout? God does weird, crazy things for his people. Yahweh uses creative and wild, imaginative ways to meet the needs of his people. I love that about Jesus. His answers to our prayers, his meeting our needs are not boring. He meets our needs and he often does it in surprising ways. Like an angel waking you up, making you pancakes and saying, come and get it, breakfast is ready. The text is impressing on us to expect wild and crazy things from God. This text is telling us to stick our necks out and trust Jesus no matter what we see with our eyes. Just this past week, Piper, one of our little girls, was having a bad morning and she crawled on her bed crying and saying, I don't want to go to school. And I said, well, you have to go to school. But I said, you know what? We serve Jesus. Your day might get really better. And as I said it, I thought, I need to hear that. Man, sometimes you say things, you're like, that was for me. Thank you, Lord. I said, we serve Jesus. He's good. He's kind. He's faithful. We don't know what he's going to do for us today. Let's get out of bed with excitement and anticipation that the God that we love and the God who loves us might do something crazy in our life today. And so let's do this as a church. Let's start talking about and anticipating and expecting God to come through for us in wild and crazy ways. How about that? I mean, why not? Why not talk about and anticipate? Like, hey, this is going on in my life, friend, and I'm freaking out and stressed out, but Jesus is going to come through for me, so let's just get some popcorn and watch and see what he does. What's he going to do? It's going to be great. Let's become that kind of church. I mean, why not? What's the alternative to that? To mope? To despair? To listen to the devil's lies and accusations? To worry? To stress? To pull our hair out? To chew our fingernails down until they bleed? Or we can expect Jesus to intervene. We can anticipate him intervening because we believe his word. And because we believe that he is faithful. So let's become a church that expects God to respond with wild and crazy answers to our prayers. Let's start talking about and anticipating and expecting God to come through for us in wild, crazy ways. I mean, that's better than fear and worry and sleepless nights, right? It's better than moping, huh? After all. Who are we dealing with here? Baal? Do we worship Baal? Is Jesus like Baal? 
Do you remember what the prophets had to do in chapter 18? The prophets of Baal? Trying to get his attention, crying out to him. He's not listening. Maybe we should start cutting ourselves and bleeding, and maybe then he'll hear us. Are we dealing with Baal here? No. We're dealing with Jesus. We are God's children. Believe it. God always provides for his children. God always cares for his children. If your parents are, don't you love your children and care for them? Of course you do. How much more God? We're God's children. Just this week and even today, I was like, I'm going to tick the devil off and believe God's promises. I'm one of God's children, devil. He cares for me. He's going to come through for me. Sometimes faith is that way. It just gets in the devil's faith and says, I'm going to believe God's word. Shut up. Because I'm God's child and God cares for his children. Are we dealing with Baal? No. So what do we do? We just humble ourselves. We get low before the Lord. We pour our hearts out to him. We open the empty hands of faith. Leave it all with him. And then we rise in expectancy and excitement as we anticipate Jesus proving his faithfulness to us in wild and crazy, imaginative, and out-of-this-world ways. That's what we do. And when you flip over your church bulletin and you see the financial report and you see some red ink there, what do you do? You look at that and you say, here, Jesus, we're going to trust you to come through for us. I mean, you might need to do something. Maybe you want to give some green to turn that red into black. You can do that. You can do your part. We just take that to Jesus and say, here you go. There's some red on the back here. Please make it black. And expect him to do that. I'm not worried about that red. Jesus specializes in changing red ink to black ink. He's been faithful to this church as long as I've been here, and I think he's going to plan on it. So imagine being a church where we, instead of stressing out, what if we began stressing the wild and crazy faithfulness of God so that the children who grow up here at Grace and eventually leave for college or wherever they go into the world, they leave here and they have a part of their spiritual DNA some thoughts like this. Or they leave Grace and they encounter some trouble in their life and their knee-jerk reaction is to say, God is faithful and He's good. He keeps covenant and I can trust him with this situation that I'm facing and I can pour my heart out to him because he cares for me and I can trust and expect and anticipate him coming through for me in wild, crazy and imaginative ways. And so I'll just rest now and wait to see how he's going to blow my mind with his answers. I mean, who doesn't want that for their kids when they leave home? Who doesn't want that for their kids when they face whatever it is they're going to face in this world? And who doesn't want that for themselves? I do. Let's become a church where that kind of talk is a part of our discipleship. Where we focus on the character of God. Where we talk about his covenant-keeping nature. How he's faithful to his promises. How he's faithful to his fickle people. Let's talk about how he's sovereign and all-knowing, and all-powerful, and then let's believe it. This week, I just thought to myself, do you believe your theology? Believe it. Let me ask you, do you believe your theology that God is sovereign and working through all things to bring you good? Do you believe it? Believe it. 
And so when we create and cultivate this kind of church culture, when we talk about what God might do, when we talk about how he is faithful, when we create a culture of expectancy instead of negativity, there's red. Who cares if there's red? We'll pray and give it to Jesus. What can, what can we do? What can we really do? To trust him with everything. Negativity, expectancy, when we do that, we'll strengthen our spiritual muscles so that as a church family we can, and so that you as an individual disciple can learn to trust what God says over what you see. Which is why you have to be in the Bible, to hear what God says. Yes, trusting Jesus is hard. No one is denying that. But you got to be in the Bible to hear what he says because faith comes through hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ, the word of God. Trusting Jesus is hard. We're not saying it's not. Ray Ortland says, trusting God is not comfortable. It doesn't belong in a Hallmark card picture, a colorful valley, a quaint village, a church steeple with a sentimental slogan. Trusting God can be extremely uncomfortable, even painful. You may be going through hell right now. You may be be bewildered, gasping, frightened, but that doesn't mean you aren't trusting God. It might mean you are trusting God. There's something about coming to the end of ourselves and our own strength and wisdom. That's when our hearts finally crack open and the love of God pours in. When we have nothing of our own left, when nothing will suffice but that which is directly and immediately of God, that's when God alone is our sufficiency. And we find him to be so. He's worth the wait. Trusting Jesus is hard because we're sinners. It doesn't come natural to us. He's trustworthy. The problem's not with him. The problem is with our hearts. And so God in his grace and in his overwhelming kindness, he gave us a meal that we can eat together so that our faith can be strengthened again and again and again. Gave us a meal so that we could be reminded that Jesus can't remember our sins. Hallelujah. He gave us a meal so that we could remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the Lord's Supper is given to us so that we may be reminded that God is faithful. That he's trustworthy it's given to us so that we can taste and see again that the lord is good and so we look to jesus as we come to this table as we celebrate his life death and resurrection we celebrate his love for us we celebrate please understand this is a celebration it's not a funeral we're here to celebrate that god says to sinners like us who have offended his glory hey y'all can come to my table and eat that's what we're here to celebrate doesn't mean we don't repent. Of course we repent. Of course course we confess our sins. But repentance is not like sucking on a lemon. No, repentance is sweet. Sweet because when we repent, we get real with the real Jesus about our very real sins. And we just confess that to him. When we repent, we get Jesus, right? We get a Savior who says, come here. You're forgiven. You're clothed with my righteousness. 
Repentance is not bad. Repentance is sweet. Because when we repent, we get Jesus. And so we come to this table today to repent of our sins and to celebrate that Jesus paid it all. To celebrate that it is finished. We don't have to do anything. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. What he's already done for us. And so in the Lord's Supper, Jesus offers us himself with all of his benefits. And we receive him by faith when we just open the empty hands of faith and we say, I'll receive the gift. I mean, who knew? Who knew? A little cracker type thing and a swig of grape juice as a sign and seal of his promise. Who knew that that little cracker type thing and a swig of grape juice could strengthen our faith? It's not pancakes, but it's enough. It's not pancakes, just a little cracker and juice, but it's enough to comfort and strengthen any weary sinner here today. And so let's repent, and then we'll feast on Christ by faith. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that that we can get real with you. That we can repent and confess our sins. And we do, Jesus. We confess that we have not trusted you. We confess that we've been chewing our nails and pulling out our hair and tossing and turning in bed at night. And that's sin. And we confess it. And we confess all kinds of other sins that we don't even have enough time for here this morning, Jesus. We just confess that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we thank you that you are sufficient sufficient Savior. Thank you that your blood washes away our sins. Thank you that you can't even remember our sins. And so we acknowledge our need of you. Would you come and serve us and and feed us today and may we be strengthened for the journey ahead. And may we celebrate what you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.